Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Listen to the way David describes the scripture in Psalm 19. In the first six verses of this psalm, David writes how the glory of the Lord is revealed in creation. But then David's focus shifts to the word of God, describing it as the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the rules of the Lord. That's all talking about scripture. So here we go, Psalm 19, 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The sufficiency of Scripture is what's at stake today. The common question from Roman Catholics that I will answer is this. Where does the Bible teach the doctrine of sola scriptura? If the Bible does not teach sola scriptura, then it is a self-defeating belief by Protestants. All right, so if you've been following along with this podcast, you will remember that Protestants profess sola scriptura, which is Latin for Scripture alone. The 1689 London Baptist Confession says this regarding Scripture. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. This means that the Bible is our ultimate authority and contains every teaching the Christian needs for salvation and obedience to God. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, disagrees with this, and they claim three sources of ultimate authority— the Bible. So, uh, you know, first, Roman Catholics do have a very high view of Scripture. They believe that it is the infallible Word of God. But Roman Catholics have other sources of ultimate authority as well. The second is apostolic tradition, so or, or just simply tradition sometimes is how it's referred to. So these are the supposed teachings which were passed down directly from the apostles. The, the, they're like oral teachings that were never written down. And the Roman Catholic Church asserts that some of these doctrines, even though they are not taught in Scripture, are equally binding for the Christian to believe. And then the third source of authority for a Roman Catholic is the magisterium, which consists of the Pope and the bishops teaching in union with him. And so here is where I believe the Roman Catholics are terribly inconsistent. The magisterium claims authority to infallibly interpret Scripture. So the magisterium tells us what Scripture means. The magisterium also claims to have authority to declare infallibly what the oral traditions of the apostles were. So when the magisterium claims a certain doctrine to be a dogma of the church, that dogma is binding on the Christian conscience. You must believe it to be saved. You cannot deny it, even privately. Now, you can be saved without knowledge of that. So so if you've never heard of the doctrine of of papal infallibility, but you're trusting in God, in Roman Catholicism, there's sort of a way around it. Um, God grants grace in those situations where people don't have the knowledge of what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. But you cannot know that it is a dogma of the church and reject it. If you willingly reject it, that is a a grave sin. Now, Protestants, of course, profess sola scriptura, and, and, and we like to say, Protestants like to say, that Roman Catholics profess sola ecclesia, which means the church alone. Roman Catholics, of course, object to this label, and they try to assert over and over again that Scripture, tradition, and the magisterium are all like equal authorities. 
But what if a Catholic, stu- like just your average Catholic, that, you know, so what if he studies scripture with the best of intentions, uh, looks at all the original language stuff, is, is reading up and studying scripture, and believes that a certain passage teaches something different than what the magisterium says it teaches? What can that person do? As a Catholic, they can do nothing. They cannot appeal to Scripture as an ultimate authority against the magisterium. They also cannot appeal to apostolic tradition because the magisterium tells us that this oral apostolic tradition, the magisterium is the one who tells us what that is. And so the Roman Catholic magisterium has a monopoly on the whole thing. And I'll get into more of this later, but the Roman Catholic Church claims it is impossible for the magisterium to be wrong in their infallible decrees. So how do you argue with that? You can't. You just have to submit to the Roman Catholic magisterium, hence the phrase sola ecclesia. Now, that concept is important to understand and is one of the fundamental differences between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Now, the pushback from Catholics is that the Bible, Scripture alone, does not teach sola scriptura. That's the assertion that is being made, and that's what I will discuss today. As always, you can connect with me at bearchristianity at gmail.com, or you can message me on Instagram at therealbearmartin. And today's episode of Bear Christianity is sponsored by the Daylight Savings Registry. Are you depressed because it gets dark at 5.30? Do you instantly feel better once Daylight Savings Time comes back around every March? What if it was always Daylight Savings Time? Now it can be thanks to the Daylight Savings Registry. Today, people can identify as anything they want. Why not identify as a person who prefers Daylight Savings Time? Simply sign up online at www.daylightsavingsregistry.com. Once registered, you can identify as a person who likes Daylight Savings Time. Once you identify as a Daylight Savings individual, everybody must respect the time schedule you prefer. Don't be disrespected anymore by those standard time monsters who are suppressing your daylight freedom. Speak up for yourself and identify as a daylight saver. Millions have already registered. Maybe one day we can get rid of standard time altogether. The Daylight Savings Registry. Step out of the dark and into the light. Online registry may not actually work. Some restrictions may apply. Okay, our main focus today will be on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And here's the context. Paul is writing to Timothy, and this is thought to be one of Paul's last letters. Timothy is younger than Paul, and their relationship is, is sort of like a father-son relationship in the faith. And so Paul was Timothy's mentor in the Christian life. And in this letter, Paul is encouraging Timothy as, as Timothy is preaching and taking care of his church. And so here are the verses we will focus on today. Paul says this to Timothy, and this starts in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, the first thing to address here is is this this idea of what is Scripture? What does Paul mean by Scripture in this context? Paul is literally writing a letter that will become part of the New Testament. So at, at this time, when Paul is writing, the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, 
doesn't really exist as the New Testament. The different letters are being written, but it hasn't been sort of put together by the church as the as the New Testament. And so when Paul wrote this letter, the they were being circulated, uh, but not but some of them may not have even been written yet. Probably weren't written yet. And so the word scripture here is referring to the Old Testament in Timothy's mind. Uh, but does this ref, the, does this verse restrict its interpretation to the Old Testament only? Now, if I were using this verse to debate an atheist, then they may have a point here, because in Timothy's direct context, it is referring to the Old Testament. However, Roman Catholics and Protestants agree that the New Testament is Scripture. Both sides believe that the letter of 2 Timothy is the infallible Word of God, and it is Scripture. So, the verse says, all Scripture, anything that is considered Scripture, is breathed out by God. All Scripture. And so in, in when I'm talking to a Roman Catholic and we are we're talking about the issues of sola scriptura and that and that sort of thing, this is fair to use. This verse is fair to use because in the immediate context to Timothy, yes, scripture is is most likely referring to the Old Testament only. But for a Protestant and a Catholic, the New Testament is scripture as well. And so I'm allowed to use this verse in defending Sola Scriptura when I'm defending it against a Roman Catholic. The next point I want to make is is massive, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this, and it is this idea of all Scripture is breathed out by God, or God breathed. Some translations may say inspired by God. Basically, the, the Greek word here, Paul invents a Greek word, and he combines theos, which means God, and that's where we get the word theology, the study of God. And then he also uses a word paneo, which is to breathe or to blow. And so putting these concepts together gives us the word theanustas. So go ahead and say it out loud. I know you want to, theanustas. You're going to hear me say that word a bunch, theanustas. That is a, a the Greek word that Paul sort of, um, he combines God and to breathe, puts them together, and this is the concept here. All scripture is theanustas, or breathed out by God, God breathed. And so this concept of scripture being theanustas has to do with the origin and the nature of scripture. As I read several different resources on this word, I kept coming across this parallel. And so this is not something that I'm just thinking up in, in my own mind. This is something that a lot of different commentators mentioned. And it goes back to Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. In the same way, God spoke the scriptures into existence. Yet the the means by which we have the scriptures today is different from creation in Genesis 1. Uh, nevertheless, that is the mindset we must have when approaching the Bible. It is breathed out by God. Uh, you don't know it yet, but I, th- this is a huge, huge point. Uh, the scriptures are the scriptures because they are theanustas. The scriptures are the result of God's eternal decree. They are not God's backup plan. God didn't see what Moses or Paul or John wrote and thought to himself, wow, that's pretty good. I like that. I think I'll I'll make that scripture. Let me breathe into those documents so that they will, will be scripture. No, God from eternity past decided to tell us about himself through scripture. Scripture is from God. It is breathed out by God. God did not breathe into something written by man to make it scripture. 
Uh, rather, as B.B. Warfield put it, and, and what I'm giving you here is a paraphrase, but basically B.B. Warfield says, God created the men who would write scripture the way he wanted it written. So it all starts with God. No church decrees or ecumenical councils decide what scripture is. God knows exactly which books are scripture because they are God-breathed. The same God who spoke the world into existence is the creator of scripture. So I know I've kind of repeated myself a bunch, and I I will continue to do so. This is a, a huge concept, so I I got to let that really sink in. And so I'm, I'm just going to let that idea sort of simmer, because next episode, we're going to come back to this a lot. Now, because Scripture is theanustas, its origin is from God, That its origin and nature, that's what I just talked about, but also its authority is from God. When God told Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit of a certain tree in the Garden of Eden, that command was the word of God. It demanded obedience because God is God and Adam and Eve are not. God's commands come with ultimate authority. He doesn't need a reason. He is God. Now, don't get me wrong. God has a purpose for every commandment he gives, and his commandments are loving and right and true. But just like God's command to Adam and Eve, Scripture, because it is theanustas, demands the same obedience. It has the same authority. Scripture is not just things written down by men that God liked. Uh, 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Charles Hodge, a Protestant theologian, says the men who wrote Scripture were the, quote, organ of God. And what that man wrote was what God wrote. So here's a, a little simple question, and you've heard this before. Who wrote Romans? Who wrote the book of Romans? Well, you, you, some of you may say Paul, but then you may think, oh, wait, but the Holy Spirit, you know, God wrote Romans. Was it God's words or Paul's words? Yes, it was. <laughs> That's a weird way of answering it. But yes, it was God's words and it was Paul's words. So was it like 50% God and 50% Paul? No, it's it's all God's words and it's all Paul's words. So scripture is God breathed. Also, Jesus held men responsible for for that which was God breathed. And so this is the verse I mentioned at the end of last week. It's Matthew 22, 31. Jesus says this, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said or spoken to you by God? Jesus never appeals to Jewish oral tradition as the standard by which the Jewish leaders must live by. Rather, Jesus was constantly saying things like, it is written, have you not read in the scriptures? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. As the scripture says, Jesus is constantly arguing from scripture, and those people were responsible for knowing what scripture said. Jesus held them accountable for not understanding or obeying it. To some of his own followers on the road to Emmaus, just after his resurrection, Jesus, he said to them, and this is in Luke 24, 25 through 27, you've heard this verse before too. Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's a way of saying scripture, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus held men accountable for knowing the Old Testament because it is theanustas, it is scripture. Have you not read what God spoke to you? And so that's that's how Jesus approaches scripture. Now, because scripture is theanustas, its origin or, or nature is from God, its authority is from God, and its sufficiency is from God. 
how do we know anything about God? It is because God has revealed himself to us. He reveals himself in creation, his son, and his word, which is recorded for us by the Old Testament prophets and the apostles of Jesus Christ. So therefore, we know about God because of what is theonustos, what is God-breathed. Creation is God-breathed, but not sufficient to, to teach us about salvation. Jesus is literally called the Word of God. And so in, in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 1.18, it says, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, by, by taking on flesh, by becoming a human, teaches us about God on our level so so that we can we can learn who God is. In Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 it says long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. So Jesus is God in the flesh and when Jesus taught others what he said what he taught was theanustas but Jesus lived a finite amount of time on this earth. As much as we would like to, we do not walk and talk with Jesus Christ in the flesh today. Now, I'm being very careful here, so let me make sure you heard me correctly. We do not physically, as I may go on a walk around the neighborhood with my wife, we don't physically walk and talk with Jesus. He ascended into heaven. So how do we know anything about Jesus today? Well, it's through the Bible. I've mentioned that God reveals himself through creation, his son, and the word of God, scripture. But scripture alone contains all three of those. That's the only way I know anything about God. It, so scripture tells us about creation. It tells us about the fall of man and sin and our need for a savior. The Old Testament promises Jesus. It prophesies Jesus. The gospels and the New Testament show us who Jesus was, You know the, the life that he lived here on earth. And the rest of the New Testament teaches Christians who we are when we place our faith in Christ Jesus. And they also teach us how to live and how to become more like Jesus. Jesus. So the scripture contains all of what God chose to reveal to us about himself and also how to follow him, how to worship him. Scripture is sufficient because it contains what God wanted to reveal to us. It is enough for us to know how to be saved, how to faithfully follow Christ. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So what is scripture good for, according to this verse? For teaching, for reproof, and, and this is like a rebuke or conviction of sin, correction, and then training in righteousness. And for what purpose? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I really like the way that the NLT, that's the New Living Translation, um, it translates this verse. Now the NLT is not so much concerned with translating every single word from you know word for word from the Greek, uh, but its goal is to translate the main idea of the verse. And so here is the the NLT translation of Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. 
So I think it's pretty clear. Paul is telling Timothy that scripture is sufficient for what Timothy needs in the ministry. Now, some will argue that the man of God phrase is only talking about pastors and not and, and does not apply to every Christian. Well, even if we adopt this interpretation, I don't think it weakens anything that I'm trying to, to defend. If pastors who are supposed to be leaders in the church in instructing or shepherding Christians, if scripture is sufficient for them, then surely scripture contains enough information for the, excuse the term here, basic Christian. All right, so if it's enough to fully equip a pastor who's supposed to know the most about God to teach others, then surely scripture is enough to equip everybody else. Uh, Now, let me step into nerd mode here for just a moment. I looked at 10 different English translations of the word complete, and here are the various ways the Greek word, and it's the Greek word artios, is translated, that the man of God may be, and then in the ESV it says complete, but here's the other translations, adequate, capable, competent, perfect, proficient, thoroughly equipped, or prepared. So when you hear words like this, do you think Timothy do you think Timothy needs anything else to do every good work? It seems Paul is trying to emphasize that scripture provides Timothy with everything he needs. It is sufficient. Uh, but just to make sure, Paul doubles down because the next word comes from the Greek word exartizo. And according to Vine's Bible Dictionary, this word means to fit out or to furnish completely. When a house is completely furnished, it means you have everything you need to live there. In the same way, if I am outfitted to go hunting, you know, if I walked into Bass Pro Shop and said, I want to go hunting and I want everything I need to go hunting. Bass Pro Shop can completely outfit me for the task. That is the sense of the word Paul uses here. Uh, you know, one one more nerd reference here. The, the Laonida Greek-English lexicon is a well-respected resource used and kind of defines uh, words used in biblical Greek. And it says this about the word exartizo. It means to make someone completely adequate or sufficient for something, to cause to be fully qualified. So, those are a few of the definitions for that word exartizo. So, so it is extremely clear from an analysis of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that Paul is telling Timothy that scriptures are sufficient for him to do every good work. Remember that, every good work. Now, why have I emphasized the specific words used here? Because Roman Catholics will try to use other verses of the Bible to disprove sola scriptura. So here's a few examples. James 1.4, and let steadfastness, or another way to say that is perseverance, let perseverance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, does this verse mean that steadfastness or perseverance makes you complete just like God-breathed scripture makes Timothy complete? Here's another verse that, that Catholics like to use, Matthew 19, verse 21. Jesus said to him, "If you," and this is Jesus talking to the rich young ruler, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So is just selling all you have and giving it to the poor, is that sufficient for, for the Christian? Colossians 1, 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature or complete in Christ. Now, all of these verses that I just mentioned are about becoming complete or perfect in some way, but they are not technically talking about how Scripture makes you complete. So does this mean that Scripture alone is not sufficient? 
Well, here's the catch. These verses are using a different Greek word than what is found in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So when you are studying the Bible in this much detail and you get down in the trenches of these arguments, the original languages become very important and also the context of the verses. You can't just pull a verse to, you know, out of context to make it say what you want. And so I'm not going to go into this any further. I just wanted to make you aware of of some of the some of the ways that that are used by you know people disagreeing with the the idea of sola scriptura. So you can't just look in an English Bible and f- see the word perfect or complete and just assume that it's the same Greek word. And so the translators have a difficult task uh, of trying to communicate what scripture is trying to say with just English words. Now, I will have a later episode that that covers over some of the specific uh, Roman Catholic Church's defenses of their own position and and, and some of the arguments, uh, some of the other arguments against sola scriptura. Now, let's go back to this idea of every good work. I've tried to establish that scripture, because it is God-breathed, needs to be viewed as the direct word of God to us. God speaks to us through scripture, and the Holy Spirit is the one who shows us the truth from scripture. We do not need another source to tell us what scripture means. We don't need an interpreter. I think God is perfectly capable of communicating to his people. If God chose to speak to us, then he can certainly create a book that communicates with clarity. Furthermore, Christians have the Holy Spirit, which illuminates our eyes to understand Scripture. Let me show you the difference in the Roman Catholic position. So starting at paragraph 101 in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, there are several statements about sacred Scripture, and there are many things I agree with. In Catechism 105, God is acknowledged as the author of sacred Scripture. In Catechism 111, the Catholic Church tells its followers the Holy Spirit helps one properly interpret Scripture. Then there is a little note. It says the Second Vatican Council indicates three criteria for interpreting Scripture in accordance with the Spirit who inspired it. And then one of these criteria is found in Catechism paragraph 113. It says this, quote, Read the scripture within the living tradition of the whole church. According to a saying of the fathers, sacred scripture is written principally in the church's heart rather than in documents and records. For the church carries in her tradition the living memorial of God's word, and it is the Holy Spirit who gives her the spiritual interpretation of the scripture, according to the spiritual meaning which the Spirit grants to the church." End quote. Did you catch that? Scripture is written principally in the church's heart rather than in documents and records, for the church carries in her tradition the living memorial of God's word. Well, why in the world do we need the documents and records of Scripture then? If the documents and records don't really matter, why don't we just listen to what the church tells us the documents and the records mean? All those documents can be so confusing. Just listen to the church. True scripture is in the church's heart and not in those documents and records. I have got two words for you, sola ecclesia. Basically, you cannot just go to the scripture alone for an interpretation based on the Roman Catholic teaching. You must look at scripture through the lens of what the church tells you scripture is saying. That is the way Catholics must interpret Scripture. They need the church to tell them how to interpret it. Of course, the church claims the Holy Spirit guides their interpretation, so therefore it is infallible. The Holy Spirit, of course, is way too busy to help every individual interpret Scripture, so the Spirit has has delegated that responsibility to the Roman Catholic Church.
Now, that is not what Paul is saying in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Paul tells Timothy to stick to Scripture. and In fact, later he'll say, preach the Word, uh, because it is God-breathed, and it is capable of equipping you for every good work. So here's the question to the Roman Catholic. Would it be considered a good work to teach people about the Catholic dogmas, such as papal infallibility or the dogmas about Mary? her immaculate conception, perpetual virginity, and the bodily assumption of Mary, if those would be considered a good work that the man of God should be equipped to do, then why don't the scriptures teach us anything about them? If all of the Catholic dogmas are beliefs which the faithful Christian must believe, then why doesn't scripture equip the man of God to teach the flock about such important dogmas? How can the man of God be fully equipped to teach the people about the bodily assumption of Mary using scripture? He can't. This requires outside information. The Roman Catholic Church's magisterium claims to possess oral tradition that's passed down from the apostles, which has equal authority with Scripture. Okay, great. Well, why don't you tell us what they are? If you have them, then let us know. If the apostles taught them and you are supposedly, if you are not changing or adding anything to these oral traditions, then why don't you let us know what they are right now? The Roman Catholic Church doesn't do this. So, for instance, papal infallibility was not defined as an infallible dogma of the Roman Catholic Church until 1870. So over 1,800 years had to go by for the church to announce a supposed oral tradition that was passed down from the apostles themselves. So it's just like if you have all these oral traditions— Just tell us. Tell us what they are so that we can fully know about God. Why do they have to develop? Why do you have to progressively announce them thousands of years after the apostles supposedly taught them? Now, here is how the Roman Catholics get around it. They say that these oral traditions or church doctrines are developed. And this is based on a very popular essay published in 1845 by a prominent Catholic thinker, Cardinal John Henry Newman. It's entitled An Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine. And basically, the Roman Catholic Church says that they don't need to show historical proof that the apostles taught in detail any of these Roman Catholic dogmas. They claim that as the church studies that which the apostles taught, again, we don't know what that is uh, uh, apart from what is found in Scripture— these, these doctrines sort of develop over time. Cardinal Newman said in his essay that these doctrines develop like an acorn into an oak tree. Vatican II, which is a Roman Catholic ecumenical council from, eight, uh, from excuse me, 1962 to 1965, it describes the development of church doctrine this way. The tradition which comes from apostles develops in the church with the help of the Holy Spirit, for there is a growth in the understanding of the realities and the words which have been handed down. This happens through the contemplation and study made by believers who treasure these things in their hearts, through a penetrating understanding of the spiritual realities which they experience, and through the preaching of those who have received through episcopal succession the sure gift of truth. For as the centuries succeed one another, the church constantly moves forward toward the fullness of divine truth until the words of God reach their complete fulfillment in her. And so, and that's the end of that quote. So we need the church to just slowly ponder these things and eventually, hopefully, tell us the full truth that God wants us to have. Why can't the Roman Catholic Church at least tell us 
the acorn information. Paul and the other apostles passed down oral teachings, so why not give us the raw data? The Roman Catholic Church says these doctrines have to be studied, contemplated until they are fully grown. Okay, well, why don't you at least tell us what you are contemplating? Tell us the information you know the apostles orally passed down. If you want to say the doctrine develops over time, you should at least be able to tell us with certainty what the apostles taught. They were passed down orally through the church, right? Well, why don't you publish all these oral teachings so we can know what they are while you are contemplating them? Going back to Cardinal Newman's little acorn oak tree illustration, the Roman Catholic Church may announce more oak tree dogmas in the future, but I want to know the acorns. Like, there, there should be no more acorns than what the apostles taught. And so why don't you publish the raw data, the acorns? I want to know what all of those are, and then we'll see what doctrines develop from those that the Roman Catholic Church releases sometime in the future. Also, why did they have to remain oral? If they are so important, why not write them down and keep the originals in a vault at the Vatican? I mean, does this bother anyone besides me? It's like the magisterium says, we have this oral tradition information that has been entrusted to the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church since the time of Jesus, but we need to contemplate what these oral traditions actually mean for centuries and sometimes a millennium or more until we can tell you what the fully developed teaching of the apostles were. But don't worry, just trust the church. We are infallible on these matters. And so Catholics will try to, to, to defend this, this concept that doctrine can develop over time by saying that, oh, well, the doctrine of the Trinity developed over time, and so papal infallibility or all these dogmas about Mary are the same way. Here's the difference. The doctrine of the Trinity is supported throughout the, the entire Bible. Over the first few centuries of church history, different teachings did gain popularity concerning the divinity of Jesus Christ as well as the Holy Spirit, and so clarifications had to be made regarding the Trinity. But these clarifications were based on evaluating what the Bible taught, not appealing to some kind of church tradition that was passed down or even to the, to the infallible Pope. No, rather, they argued from the Bible. We, when we read you know, the arguments about the, the Trinity, for instance, Athanasius argued from the Bible against those who were teaching that Jesus was not truly God, that he was God's first creation. That They argued from the Bible. They didn't appeal to some sort of oral tradition or, or, or church magisterium. So for the doctrine of the Trinity, it is biblical. You can find it in the Bible. Uh, every distinction that was made in church history about the Trinity is that, that's considered orthodox today can be backed up from biblical teaching. Now, you cannot do this with some of the other dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. So I will come back to this in later episodes when I discuss the, and I'm putting this in air quotes here, biblical support for things like papal infallibility and the, the dogmas about Mary. Now, hopefully from this episode, I've been able to show that the scriptures are, as the London Baptist Confession said, and I quoted this at the beginning, that the scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Sola Scriptura is taught in the Bible. Now, here is a quote from, and I mentioned this last week, this book. It's called Sola Scriptura. It's a great read on this, this topic. Uh, this section was written by John MacArthur, and he says this, The Reformation principle of Sola Scriptura has to do with the sufficiency of Scripture as our supreme authority in all spiritual matters. Sola Scriptura simply means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or 
or implicitly in Scripture. And, and 2 Timothy, as I've tried to show today, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, teaches just that. So this is why I believe what I believe. This is the way I see it. I can either put my trust in Scripture or the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church as the ultimate authority in my life. It cannot be both. If the magisterium has to abide by what scripture, what is taught in Scripture, then Scripture is by necessity the ultimate authority. If Scripture can only be interpreted by the magisterium and no outside interpretation can be valid if it disagrees with the magisterium, then the magisterium is the ultimate authority. It cannot be both. And so I do not believe that that ultimate authorities with Scripture and the Magisterium can be held at the same time. The Roman Catholic Church is at odds with Scripture, not in every way. Now, I am united with Roman Catholics in regard to the doctrine of the Trinity, the sanctity of human life. There, there are lots of things we can link arms with, but some of Catholicism's core teachings are different from what is taught in the Bible. And, and so I want to make sure I'm clear. My ultimate authority is God. I do not worship the physical pages of Scripture. My physical Bible is just leather, paper, and ink. I worship the God of Scripture. I worship the God of creation. So creation and Scripture are the only things I can physically see that allow me to learn about God. Creation is enough to show me that God exists, but creation alone cannot show me enough about God for my salvation. Scripture alone contains that information. So God is my ultimate authority, but besides creation, the only way I know about God is what he has revealed to me through Scripture. So I believe Scripture is God-breathed. I believe it is the Word of God. It is God's way of revealing Himself to me. It is a standard, and it does not change. I cannot put my trust in the Roman Catholic Church as the true Church of God because I am, I'm not convinced that some of their infallible dogmas are actually God-breathed. I have bound myself to Scripture, and to copy the words of Martin Luther, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant. Now, they're, they're not asking me to recant, but uh, for to go against conscience would be neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. Uh, so I know this is a, this. you know, think about this. The decision I'm talking about here is massive. It, it, it has to do with heaven or hell, basically, in, in the Roman Catholic mind. And so, you know, this is a massive decision, but I cannot, I cannot in good conscience side with the magisterium and the Roman Catholic Church against what I believe is taught in Scripture. Now, here's what a Catholic might say to me. Well, how do you even know what Scripture is without church tradition? The Roman Catholic Church's tradition, historical tradition, is the only way that you even know which books are Scripture and which books are not. And so this is the question I will answer next episode. In closing, God is above all. The Lord is the ultimate authority in my life, and I know I must submit to the Lord. I am convinced the Bible is the way God communicates to his children. Does he speak to us through Scripture or through other men who claim to infallibly interpret Scripture for us? It cannot be both. The closing verse, I know I'm taking it out of context, but the Bible, because the Bible in this verse is talking about God and money, but I believe the same truth applies to today's episode. Scripture or the Roman Catholic magisterium, who is it going to be for you? Matthew 6, 24a says, no one can serve two masters. Mm-hmm.